Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a bi-weekly podcast delivering a legit, seriously researched, hard-hitting survey of American history through entertaining stories. If you'd like to support HTDS or enjoy bonus content, please consider giving at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. It's early morning, January 3rd, 1777, and General George Washington's 4,500 poorly dressed, sometimes shoeless soldiers are marching along an icy but thawing country road in New Jersey. They've been doing so for six or seven hours. See, yesterday, while encamped just south of Trenton and on the south side of the Assunpink Creek, the Continental Commander noticed that a sizable Redcoat army commanded by Lord Cornwallis whose leave for England has been canceled thanks to the Patriots' Christmas victory right here last week, was entering the town. His lordship made camp, thinking he'd capture these rebels in the morning. But you know George. He pulled one of his classic, leave the campfires burning and quietly move out under the cover of night moves. You'd think the British generals would have caught on to that one by now, but I digress. Cornwallis's arrival in Trenton is why George and his exhausted men have marched some 12 miles through the freezing night and into this beautiful, if still icy, morning. And yet, this isn't a mere retreat. Believing that the best defense is a good offense, George plans to hit the British garrison at Princeton. With some quick repairs to a bridge passing over Stony Brook, the towering Virginian's continental forces are soon gathered just south of the small college town. Here, George splits his men between two very capable leaders, the Scottish immigrant-turned-patriot general Hugh Mercer, who will lead a vanguard due north on the American left, and Rhode Island's husky fight and Quaker, General Nathaniel Green, who will take a second group northeast on the American right. <laughs> Proceeding into a frozen over meadow just outside of town, General Hugh Mercer and his men are quite shocked as they stumble upon two regiments of redcoats on the move. Commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Mahood, they were heading to Trenton to reinforce Lord Cornwallis, but seeing rebels right before them, the well-trained British regulars take formation and methodically fire a volley. They fire too high. The Redcoats' musket balls fly over the Patriots' heads as they, in turn, answer with a volley of their own. The British soldiers fall, but their colonel keeps his cool and orders a bayonet charge. The Patriots are quickly pushed back. The British close in on Hugh Mercer. A handsome, imposing man, the circling Redcoats mistake the dismounted general before them for George Washington himself. They holler and jeer. Call for quarters, you damned rebel. Hugh gives them no such satisfaction. Filled with patriotic conviction, the handsome, dark-featured Scott fires back. I am no rebel. Hugh wields his sword, but can do little to defend himself against the far more numerous redcoat bayonets. The gouge, slice, or pierce the general seven times as he collapses. Hugh lies on the field, bleeding out and struggling for breath. As he does, Colonel John Haslett tries to rally the men, but a redcoat's musket ball smashes through his head, killing the officer instantly. Nathaniel Green's forces come to help the fleeing vanguard, but no amount of bravery can make up 
for these Pennsylvania militiamen's lack of training. The fight isn't looking good for the Americans. It's in this moment of despair that George Washington rides up to Hugh Mercer's retreating forces. He yells out, Parade with us, my brave fellows. There is but a handful of the enemy, and we will have them directly. George's presence, his confidence, everything about him is majestic as this blue-clad, massive Virginian gallops forward on his mighty white steed, commanding and reforming the Patriot line. He barks out orders, paying no heed, as one admiring young officer will later put it, to the thousand deaths flying about. And with his men prepared, George remains at the front as they advance to within a mere 30 yards of their British foe. George Washington's aide-de-camp, Colonel Richard Fitzgerald, pulls his hat down over his face, unwilling to witness what he expects will be his general's death. With absolute cool, George stays at the front, an easy target for the British regulars, as he gives the order. Fire! Both sides unleash their volleys. British and American musket balls alike find their marks. Men in red and blue collapse on the ground, dead or wounded, as white smoke from discharged muskets make it impossible to see for a moment. But as the smoke dissipates, the silhouette of a gargantuan figure mounted on an equally powerful steed emerges. Somehow, not a single ball so much as grazed the overexposed general. What's more, the Redcoats are running. While the Patriots have enjoyed a few wins in this war, this is a first. They've broken the British line in open combat. George is elated. He looks to his men and bellows out, It's a fine fox chase, my boys. He then spurs his horse and charges at the Redcoats as the boys follow. Meanwhile, in the town of Princeton itself, a young, slender artillery captain with a cocked hat focuses intensely as his men fire on the college's main building called Nassau Hall. Yes, it's Captain Alexander Hamilton but far from seeking revenge on the very school that previously accepted him yet denied his proposed accelerated course of study. He's blasting Nassau Hall because British troops have taken cover in it. And allegedly, one of Alexander's cannons fires a shot that rips through a portrait of King George II. We'll never know for sure if that's true, but the young captain's attack does lead the hiding redcoats to surrender. Over 20 Americans lay dead, and poor General Hugh Mercer will languish for nine days before death relieves his suffering from the multiple bayonet piercings. But British losses are greater, and George's troops not only hold the field, but have taken some two to three hundred prisoners of war. By every measure, the Battle of Princeton is a great success. Welcome to History That Doesn't Suck. I'm your professor, Greg Jackson, and I'd like to tell you a story. Between his December 26th victory at Trenton and now this victory at Princeton, George Washington has given new hope to patriots across the colonies. He's restored his reputation, so badly damaged by his losses in New York last year. He's also shown the British that if they are to have victory in America, it won't come as easily as they thought. Yeah, it looks like General Cornwallis isn't going to get to visit his wife back in England at all this winter. 
George Washington can breathe just a little bit easier as he and his men head to the village of Morristown, New Jersey to wait out the rest of the winter. And with that, we've officially finished the Trenton-Princeton campaign and are ready to head into 1777 Saratoga campaign and Philadelphia campaign. The first of these is the story of John Burgoyne's Canadian-launched failed invasion of upstate New York. Lasting from June through October, the Saratoga campaign involved some big names and egos, Philip Schuyler, Horatio Gates, and the notorious Benedict Arnold. Its outcome will have big ramifications, helping Benjamin Franklin over in Paris as he tries to talk the French into officially recognizing and allying with the United States. But after our brief stop in Paris, we'll turn back the clock to follow George Washington as he goes the rounds with Sir William Howe down in Pennsylvania during the same time as the Saratoga campaign. Once again, George is having a rough time and scrutiny is coming his way as Congress flees Philadelphia. We'll follow the Virginian general's 1777 losses, then wrap up as he and his men settle in for a cold, miserable winter's camp at Valley Forge. The whole Saratoga campaign and the 1777 portion of the Philadelphia campaign. Much to do today, so in the spirit of the French influence on this episode, only the. John Burgoyne is a gambler, a playwright, handsome, vain. John is often the life of high society parties. He's eloped with the daughter of the Earl of Derby, and the ladies say he's rather talented in the bedroom. But don't let these playboy characteristics throw you. He's also a British general who served with distinction in Portugal during the Seven Years' War and has done his part for king and country fighting against the Patriots in Boston and New York. I know. This guy sounds like an 18th century version of the Dos Equis commercial's most interesting man in the world. And in that spirit, John Burgoyne's interesting lifestyle has earned him quite the nickname, Gentleman Johnny. And that's exactly how I will refer to him throughout this episode. On leave during the winter of 1776 to 1777, Gentleman Johnny spends some of this time in London presenting a plan to end the American rebellion with an attack pushing south from Canada. Now, he was part of a somewhat similar counterattack last year, led by the governor of Quebec and commander of Canadian forces, Guy Carleton. But Gentleman Johnny doesn't mind throwing Guy under the bus to secure the leadership role of his plan. This ambitious 55-year-old Brit is looking out for himself. Gentleman Johnny's plan involves at least two, if not three, British forces. First, he proposes to lead one army of some 8,000 from Canada down into New York via Lake Champlain and the upper part of the Hudson River. If you don't know the area, Lake Champlain marks the boundary between the modern states of New York and the northern half of Vermont, while the Hudson runs solidly down eastern New York. This will be Gentleman Johnny's path. As he descends down the Empire State, a second, smaller force, led by Lieutenant Colonel Barry St. Ledger, will cut eastward across upstate New York via the Mohawk River. St. Ledger's forces will then join him on the Hudson River, likely near Albany, New York. Now, the Third Army's involvement isn't quite as clearly articulated in the written plan, dated February 28, 1777. It states that, quote, the next measure must depend on those taken by the enemy, close quote. Fair enough, gentlemen, Johnny. It is hard to say what things will look like on the ground months down the road. Nonetheless, the suave gent of a general suggests that, if it be determined, 
he will make a junction with a third military force led by Britain's commander-in-chief in America himself, General Sir William Howe. Thus, all three forces, his descending from Canada, St. Ledger's following the Mohawk River, and Sir Billy's ascending the Hudson, will hook up likely near Albany. Doing so, they'll isolate rebellious New England from the other colonies, and thus divide and conquer the Patriots. Both King George and the current Secretary of State for the Colonies, Lord George Germain, love it. The plan, later to be dubbed the Saratoga Campaign, gets approved. There's just one problem. Only days later, on March 3rd, Lord Germain also approves of Sir William's proposal to take the de facto colonial capital of Philadelphia. Okay, look, this is an issue historians argue over, so I'm going to tell you outright. We don't know exactly what everyone is thinking here. Clearly, Sir William Howe can't be in two places at once. It's likely that colonial secretary, Lord Germain, figures Howe can sack Philly early enough in the summer to then swing up north and participate in Gentleman Johnny's plan. But, and I want to stress this, despite exchanging several letters in the months ahead, Lord Germain never orders General Howe to participate, meaning our British commander in America is not obligated to head north. We're going to follow Gentleman Johnny to Canada for now, but as this episode continues on, just keep this miscommunication in mind. Sailing out of London aboard the HMS Apollo, the general and gentleman, that is John Burgoyne, arrives in Quebec on May 6, 1777. In the coming weeks, he takes control of a diverse force. It consists of 6,700 regulars, 3,000 of whom are Germans, mostly Brunswickers, 500 indigenous, predominantly Iroquois allied warriors, 650 Canadian and Loyalist troops, as well as 600 artillerymen equipped with 138 pieces of artillery. Additionally, there are civilians, including the wife and three young children of German commander Baron Friedrich Adolf Riedesel. This massive army departs from Saint-Jean on June 17th and is soon sailing south down Lake Champlain. On June 20th, they reach Crown Point, New York. They spend the remainder of the month here, preparing before continuing another eight miles south down Lake Champlain to hit their first military target, Fort Ticonderoga. It's July 3rd, 1777. We're three days into Gentleman Johnny's siege of Fort Ticonderoga. And right now, British and American cannons alike are thundering at each other on the western shore of Lake Champlain's tapering southern end. Naturally, the few thousand American defenders are holed up in their fort. They're commanded by Brigadier General Arthur St. Clair, who's not prepared to give up this fortification so famously captured by Patriot leaders Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold in 1775 and emptied of so many guns by Henry Knox that same winter. As for the British, they are everywhere. Gentleman Johnny and over 5,000 of his men are north of the fort. His German troops are just across the lake moving in on the Patriot fortifications found on the lake's eastern shore at Mount Independence. While another group, under Generals William Phillips and Simon Fraser, hold a small elevation called Mount Hope to the northwest of Fort Ticonderoga. And this is where the British artillery is located. Luckily for the Americans, that's still too far for the British guns to be effective. But that situation won't last long. It's now the following day, July 4th, one year exactly since the Second Continental Congress declared independence. 
Gentleman Johnny's chief engineer, Lieutenant William Twiss, supervises as redcoats and likely some Iroquois warriors labor under the summer's oppressive heat, felling trees and carving a path through the thick woods toward a 750-foot-high elevation southeast of Fort Ticonderoga called Sugarloaf Hill, or Mount Defiance. It's a steep incline. One officer told General William Phillips that only a mountain goat could get up it. But the seasoned British general and Seven Years' War veteran fired back. Where a goat can go, a man can go. And where a man can go, he can drag a gun. It seems he's right. Before Independence Day is through, the Brits have cleared a path to get their artillery up to Sugarloaf Hill's summit. The next morning, July 5th, British 12-pounders sit atop Sugarloaf Hill. Fort Ticonderoga is well within range. The American commander there, Arthur St. Clair, knows that the situation is hopeless. Abandoning all sorts of stores and munitions, he leads his wounded and 2,000 remaining healthy soldiers across the bridge, passing over Lake Champlain to the American position at Mount Independence that same night. They then continue on. Not a single American remains in Fort Ticonderoga or at Mount Independence by morning. The British see Fort Ticonderoga's fall as a game changer. King George III seems to think this will be the end of the rebellion. Upon hearing the news, he proudly announces to his wife, Queen Charlotte, I have beat them. I have beat the Americans. Ah, sorry, Georgie. While the loss of Fort Ticonderoga really sucks for the Americans, many of whom overestimate its impact as much as the Brits, I'm looking at you, John Adams. Cool it. This war is far from over. In fact, the Saratoga campaign is far from over. Though Johnny's army routes his rear guard as they head south, American General Arthur St. Clair and his men manage to make it 50 miles south to Fort Edward on July 12th. Here, they connect with the American commander of the Northern Department, General Philip Schuyler. A born and bred New Yorker and elite of old colonial Dutch descent, and, I'll note, the future father-in-law of Alexander Hamilton, Phil isn't loved by the egalitarian-oriented New Englander farmers under his command. What can I say? The rivalry between Boston and New York has been around longer than the Red Sox and the Yankees. Rather, these New Englander patriots prefer the Northern Department's second-in-command, the British-born French and Indian-slash-seven-years-war vet who now calls Virginia home and, frankly, super wants Phil's job, Horatio Gates. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Just put a pen in the conflict between Phil and Horatio for the moment. The important thing for us to focus on right now is that, while in Skinsborough, Gentleman Johnny lets a local convince him not to double back to his boats, but to continue his southward trek by land rather than using the river systems. Ah, Johnny, you idiot. Yes, this guy's a Tory, a loyalist, but he's also into real estate and probably doesn't mind the British military building a major road free of charge. Worse still for the overconfident playboy British general is how Northern Department Commander Philip Schuyler will use this ill-chosen path through the wilderness to demonstrate that the fall of Fort Ticonderoga wasn't the end of this fight, but rather just the beginning. Day after day, gentlemen Johnny's forces hack their way through thick forests of sycamores and evergreens. They slog through muddy marshes, but beyond the natural terrain, they encounter massive trees already chopped down and strewn across their path, forcing the Redcoats to spend precious hours carving up and removing them. Approaching Wood Creek, this British, German, and Iroquois army finds massive boulders and rocks in it, 
that have made the water swell out onto what little dirt path there is. Gentleman Johnny has no choice but to take his 7,000-man army and following civilians in untold wagons of supplies through the deep, thick, wheel and foot swallowing mud. This isn't the work of nature. It's the work of Philip Schuyler and his men. Philip Schuyler's sabotage slows Gentleman Johnny's army. These poor redcoats take 24 days to cover a mere 23 miles and blow through their supplies, only reaching Fort Edward to find it abandoned on July 30th. Well done, Phil. And how is the Dutch New Yorker rewarded? With a demotion that August. Despite the fact that the Northern Department lacked the manpower to defend Fort Ticonderoga properly, Congress blames him for its loss. In August, Congress names Horatio Gates as the new commander of the Northern Department. Philip feels this is personal. He writes to his friend, Governor Morris, and yes, the guy's first name is Governor, that's not a title, to complain that, my crime consists in not being a New England man in principle, and unless they alter theirs, I hope I never shall be. General Gates is their idol because he is at their direction. And lest we think it's a coincidence that Horatio Gates got this promotion, let me add that the English-born patriot has been actively campaigning Congress to take Phil's place. See what I mean about egos? Horatio's looking out for number one. Looks like Gentleman Johnny isn't the only one in this episode willing to throw his superior under the bus. But while Philip Schuyler is fighting for his honor, and for the record, a future court-martial will fully exonerate him, Gentleman Johnny's problems are multiplying. Not only are his supplies low, but one of the several hundred Native Americans in his army, believed to be Wyandotte Panther, murders colonial woman Ginny McRae. Ginny's body is found naked, shot, and scalped. Gentleman Johnny condemns the act, but he doesn't take action against Wyandotte for fear that all 500 of the indigenous warriors with him will bail. Oh, does this piss off the colonial population. By the way, Ginny was a loyalist, but that doesn't matter. Her violent death and Gentleman Johnny's choice not to punish it make for great patriot propaganda. Beyond this murder, the actions of other Native allies are making life hard for British Lieutenant Colonel Barry St. Ledger. As I trust you recall, Gentleman Johnny's plan called for a second, smaller army to rendezvous with his near Albany, New York. Well, the dark-featured colonel is leading that 1,800-strong army of mostly Loyalists and Iroquois allies, which includes Mohawk chief Joseph Bryant. They're traveling eastward through New York's Mohawk Valley, and in early August, they lay siege to Fort Stanwix. Everything is going just fine, until they encounter the strategic brilliance of General Benedict Arnold's men, that is. Here's the deal. While still in command, Philip Schuyler sent Benedict Arnold to deal with St. Barry Leisure's army, and while en route, his men captured the slightly mentally unstable and suspected Loyalist spy, Hanyo Schuyler. Now, this would not be terribly significant except that Han's mental instability causes him to ramble, and many local Native Americans consider his ramblings to be prophetic. So, one of Benedict's officers suggests that they use Han's status as a prophet to their advantage, and the Patriots' Iroquois allies not only agree with the idea, but help the colonials sell it. As Continental Army Dr. James Thatcher will later write in his journal, quote, Schuyler should be liberated, and his estate secured to him on the condition that he would return to the enemy and make such exaggerated report of General Arnold's force as to alarm and put them to flight. Several friend Indians being present, one of their head men advised 
that Schuyler's coat should be shot through in two or three places to add credibility to his story. Matters being thus adjusted, the imposter proceeded directly to the Indian camp. This stratagem was successful. The Indians instantly determined to quit their ground. St. Ledger, finding himself deserted by his Indians to the number of seven or eight hundred, deemed his situation so hazardous that he decamped in the greatest hurry and confusion, leaving his tents with most of his artillery and stores in the field. That's right. Losing nearly half of his forces to these desertions, Barry St. Ledger tucks tail and runs. This mass desertion just made Gentleman Johnny's second army collapse. Between Jenny McRae's murder and the effective collapse of Gentleman Johnny's second army, Native Americans, who, as we just saw, are found on both sides of this war, just like the colonials, have done the Patriots a solid. But while Gentleman Johnny might be a player, he certainly isn't a quitter nor yet aware of the demise of Lieutenant Colonel Barry St. Ledger's army. And so, the low on supplies commander continues forward with confidence, utterly unaware that the worst is yet to come. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, oh, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Short on food, ammo, and horses, General John Burgoyne. That is, the one and only Gentleman Johnny, desperately needs supplies if he's to continue south through New York. As such, he's agreed to send Lieutenant Colonel Friedrich Baum on a raid. Now, why Johnny thought sending a non-English-speaking commander with a predominantly Hessian force into an area brimming with patriots and loyalists alike is beyond me, but I guess the playwright general didn't think language skills would be that important in such a situation. Anyhow, on August 11th, the Hessian lieutenant colonel and 800 men move out to hit the town of Bennington, Vermont. 
Unfortunately for this raiding party, New Hampshire Militia General John Stark is nearby, and this granite stater, whom we met at the Battle of Bunker Hill in Episode 7, is determined to stop them. After a skirmish on the 15th, he tells his men the next morning that, Tonight our flag floats over yonder hill, or Molly Stark sleeps a widow. But the Yankee general's wife need not worry. In a move as deceitfully clever as the false prophet dreamed up by Benedict Arnold's men, John has his troops attach white paper badges to their hats, just like the loyalist militias do. As they march out, Colonel Baum and his heavily Hessian forces think that John's men are their allies. This New Hampshire militia mops them up. Then 600 German reinforcements arrive. Again, John Stark and his boys cut through them like schnitzel. In the end, the Granite Stater General reports, We recovered four pieces of brass cannon, some hundred stands of arms, eight brass barrels, drums, several Hessian swords, about 700 prisoners, 207 dead on the spot. Damn, John. Well done. And things only get worse for still short on supplies, gentlemen Johnny. Two weeks after losing these nearly 1,000 men at Bennington, he learns about the downfall of Lieutenant Colonel Barry St. Ledger's army. Meanwhile, Continental Major General Benjamin Lincoln is cutting Johnny's communication lines with Fort Ticonderoga and even Canada. Though to be fair, contact with Canada wouldn't do much good anyway. Bearing a grudge, Governor Guy Carleton has no interest in helping Johnny, and that's easy enough to do since the not-so-brilliant colonial secretary back in London, Lord Germain, made the bureaucratic move to put a freeze on any Canadian troops moving south. This is all terrible news for Gentleman Johnny, but at least now you know that administrators making poor decisions without knowing all the facts is a centuries-old tradition. In contrast, the Continental Commander of the Northern Department, Horatio Gates, is loving life. The local militia is rallying, and even though George Washington's dealing with his own problems down in Pennsylvania, he sacrifices by sending some of his troops to bolster Horatio's army to as much as 7,000 men. Among those George sends are Colonel Daniel Morgan and his frontier riflemen, whose sniper skills are the stuff of legend. Unwilling to face the shame of retreat, Gentleman Johnny continues south. In mid-September, he crosses west over the Hudson River into the vicinity of Saratoga, New York. But just a few miles south, Polish engineer Tadeusz Kaszkuszko is overseeing the construction of some impressive wooden and earthen fortifications on a 200-foot-high bluff overlooking Johnny's only path south, called Bemis Heights. The clash is inevitable. It's 10 in the morning, September 19, 1777. With cannons signaling the advance, the British Army moves south in three columns. Marching closest to the Hudson, General Friedrich Adolf Riedesel leads on the British left. Johnny himself takes the center, while General Simon Fraser is the farthest to the west in command of the British right. And Simon's men have an important task. They hope to reach a slope to the west where their cannons can bombard the Americans' fortifications. If they do, the British could find fortune back on their side. Up on Bemis Heights, Continental General Benedict Arnold commands the American left. That is, the Americans' western edge. The muscular Connecticutter notices that they're exposed and wants to send Colonel Daniel Morgan's riflemen out. Northern Department Commander Horatio Gates disagrees. They argue until Horatio finally gives in around 12 noon. Daniel's sharpshooting Virginians sally forth. Soon, Benedict has most of his forces on the field, fighting the British center on John Freeman's farm. 
Musket balls fly, bayonets pierce, cannonballs explode forth as both sides push back and forth, leaving dead and wounded strewn across the farm in a battle so grisly. Older Seven Years War veterans here today call this the bloodiest battle they've ever seen. Benedict's sure he's got this battle won. If only Horatio would send in reinforcements, that is. But he won't. Hundreds of Americans fall, as do twice as many in Johnny's army, as the bloodletting continues, only stopping when the dark of night makes it impossible to go on. Cautious Horatio Gates and aggressive Benedict Arnold could not interpret this first battle of Saratoga, known as the Battle of Freeman's Farm, more differently. Benedict is sure today's stalemate could have been a decisive victory that would have ended Gentleman Johnny then and there had Horatio reinforced him. The English-born commander ardently disagrees. Things grow heated between the two egocentric men quickly. They have a shouting match, or as Colonel Henry Livingston puts it, quote, Matters were altercated in a very high strain. Close quote. I believe that's 18th century four. Well, that escalated quickly. It's true that, down the road, Benedict Arnold will become America's first major and most notorious traitor. But let's not allow things to come to blind us to the here and now, when Benedict displayed the very courage and brilliance that will make his future betrayal cut so deeply. To quote Colonel Livingston a bit more as he writes to the former Northern commander, Philip Schuyler, General Arnold is the life and soul of the troops. Believe me, sir, to him and to him alone is due the honor of our late victory. He has pocketed many insults for the sake of his country, which a man of less pride would have resigned. Likewise, Captain E. Wakefield writes after the Battle of Freeman's Farm that, quote, nothing could exceed the bravery of Arnold on this day. He seemed the very genius of war. Close quote. But that's not how Horatio Gates sees it. In his wrath, if not jealousy, he excludes Benedict's bravery from his report on the battle to Congress and strips the Connecticuter of his command. By the way, if you're asking yourself, shouldn't Horatio send his reports to the commander-in-chief, General Washington, rather than directly to Congress? Yeah, you're right. But remember, Horatio looks out for himself. Perhaps he's looking to take George's command just as he's taken Philip Schuyler's. Just let that simmer on your mind for now. We'll get to those shenanigans in a later episode. For two weeks, Gentleman Johnny prays that either Sir William Howe or Sir Henry Clinton will come to the rescue. But they can't. Although General Clinton was in England while the Saratoga campaign was planned and understands the need of a third army for it to succeed, General Howe has him holding down the fort in New York City. Still, Clinton tries to induce the Northern Department to come his way by sending troops to take Patriot forts on the Hudson. Yeah, no dice. As for Howe, well, remember all the miscommunication between him and Lord Germain over whether his helping gentleman Johnny's Saratoga campaign was an obligation or optional? Here's where that problem manifests itself. Howe sees it as optional and he isn't coming. At this very moment, in mid-September, he's closing in on Philadelphia, as we'll see later in the episode. By early October, Gentleman Johnny is nearly out of food and down to five or 6,000 fighting men. His senior officers plead with him to retreat, but the Playboy General's ego will have none of that. He didn't throw people under the bus to get this command just to lose. Despite reinforcements swelling the Americans' ranks to twice the size of his, Johnny will make one last-ditch effort to break through their lines. 
It's the morning of October 7th, 1777. Under orders from Gentleman Johnny, General Simon Fraser leads 1,600 troops across Freeman's Farm, conducting reconnaissance on the American left. They encounter nothing all morning, and so reform in a line. A little past two in the afternoon, Horatio Gates sends Daniel Morgan's riflemen and Henry Dearborn's light infantry out to greet the British line. General Enoch Poor strikes from the American right. Meanwhile, Benedict Arnold asks to be let back into the fray. Horatio concedes. And although sources conflict, it's possible he even restores Benedict's command. Whatever the truth of it all is, the Patriot soldiers welcome him to the field with cheers. They love him. The Americans have the numbers. One of Daniel Morgan's crack riflemen shoots and mortally wounds General Simon Fraser. As the afternoon wears on, Johnny's men fall back to their fortifications, to their redoubts. Grapeshot and musketry cripple and kill Americans as they attack General Lord Balcaris's redoubt. But then, Benedict Arnold sees his opening. It's on the British far right at Lieutenant Colonel Heinrich von Bremen's redoubt. Benedict leads the charge. They pour over the breastwork, breaking through, but then a musket ball crashes through the brave Connecticutter's left leg. It's the same leg hit back on New Year's Eve during the attack on Quebec, as I trust you recall from episode seven. Worse still, his horse is shot and collapses, crushing his again wounded leg. And yet, as he lays here in excruciating pain, Benedict yells encouragement to his troops. Rush on, my brave boys. They do, and the Patriots win the day. About a century after this battle, the future village of Schuylerville will memorialize this crucial Patriot victory at this second Saratoga battle, or the Battle of Bemis Heights, with a 155-foot stone obelisk called the Saratoga Monument. Each of its four sides has a niche with a life-size sculpture of the four main American commanders in this campaign. Philip Schuyler faces east. Horatio Gates looks north. Colonel Daniel Morgan stares westward. And to the south is an empty niche. No statue honors the traitor Benedict Arnold. I really like this monument. It tackles the challenging task of recognizing Benedict's crucial contributions to this campaign and frankly, the American Revolution, while not honoring his betrayal. I'm not asking anyone to call Benedict's betrayal justified. Let's be clear on that. I do hope, though, that you're coming to have a more nuanced, complex, human view of the man. But that's enough about Benedict for today. The rest of his story is for another time. In losing the Battle of Bemis Heights, Gentleman Johnny's mission to divide and break the rebellion has failed. Cut off from retreating, he officially surrenders 10 days later, on October 17, 1777. His army will be imprisoned in Virginia, and he'll never hold a military command again. If only Johnny had some humility. Well, according to Horatio, all of England needs humility. The English transplant turned northern commander writes to his wife after the surrender, If old England is not by this lesson taught humility, then she is an obstinate old slut bent upon her ruin. But the Patriot victory in the Saratoga campaign does far more than humble old England. Truly, I cannot overstate its importance. Not only has Horatio Gates captured a 5,000-man British army, but this win convinces France to join the war. To be clear, French King Louis XVI isn't helping because he loves Republican government. 
In fact, he'll uh, have his own headaches over representative government in the 1790s, if you know what I mean. But he's happy to strike at his nemesis, the British crown, and get revenge for the Seven Years' War, as well as tilt the balance of global power away from London and back toward Paris. To this vengeful end, the young French king's regime has shown interest in the patriot cause since last year. In May 1776, France began secretly sending aid, starting with one million livres for munitions. And that same December, Paris welcomed the suave 70-year-old Philadelphian who makes rugged colonial garb sexy as he strolls les rues parisiennes in his fur cap, the one and only Benjamin Franklin. Ben's made progress since then with France's foreign minister, Comte de Vergennes, but with Gentleman Johnny's downfall at Saratoga, oh, it's settled. The French government believes that these scrappy rebels across the ocean might have a chance. And more than that, France wants to strike before Britain might decide to make peace. Well then, Ben is happy to oblige. On February 6, 1778, France and the United States signed two treaties. The Treaty of Amity and Commerce establishes terms for trade between the two nations, including a most favored nation clause. Next, we have the Treaty of Alliance, and it's everything the Americans want and more. Let me just quote Article 2. The essential and direct end of the present defensive alliance is to maintain effectually the liberty, sovereignty, and independence, absolute and unlimited, of the said United States. Um, congrats, France. You just became the first major country to recognize the United States. But the love doesn't stop there. In Article 8, France agrees to fight, quote, until the independence of the United States shall have been formally and tacitly assured, close quote. Now, the flip side is that the Americans can't make peace with Britain unless France is cool with it as well. But that's a deal. And the cherry on top? France renounces all territorial claims to British holdings on the North American continent. In other words, when it's time to make peace with Britain at the end of this war, France won't try to take a thing, even lands lost in the Seven Years' War. The United States need not worry about turning around to fight its ally then. The British government is floored at Ben's treaties, and it's scared. British leaders know that war with France is a total game changer. In fact, Britain's Prime Minister, Lord North, makes another overture for peace, offering everything the Americans ever wanted, minus independence. That offer would have settled things back in 1775, but now, with French aid, Lord North's a day late and a dollar short. Or a British pound short. And I'll tell you now, though this war will drag on for another six years, this is a turning point. Gentleman Johnny's failure and its domino effect bringing France into the war is a really big deal. But impressive as this win in the Saratoga campaign is, let's remember that it's not all roses for the Patriot cause in 1777. At this same time, George Washington's having a rough go as the Philadelphia campaign gets underway. General Howe's closing in on the colonial capital itself, Philadelphia, and many are losing faith in the Continental Commander as he's forced into a hard winter's camp at Valley Forge. Ready for that tale? Then you know what we need to do. Rewind. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. 
The next day, when Raw lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We left off with George Washington on January 3rd, 1777, right after he'd scored a morale-boosting victory at the Battle of Princeton. Days later, on January 8th, the Virginian general makes winter's camp at Morristown, New Jersey. His army shrinks during these early cold months of 1777. Enlistments expire. Some of the men who signed on after the Battle of Trenton only agreed to do so for a few more weeks. Others abide by that great American tradition of the Revolutionary War they desert. Smallpox strikes as well. George staves off a possible epidemic by having his soldiers submit to this new medical practice in which healthy people are purposely infected, causing a milder form of the illness that provides immunity afterward, a process called vaccination. But his numbers are still shrinking. Come March, he's down to 3,000 men. Meanwhile, Congress is frustrated with its Continental commander. See, a few months back, in that bleak December of 1776, Congress gave George dictatorial powers for six months. They wanted him to use this power to commandeer supplies from local farmers. While he does make civilians help wounded soldiers or accept the poorly valued continental dollar, George is most frequently using this temporary authority to issue pardons to New Jerseyans who took the oath of loyalty to King George when General Howe occupied the area last year. As long as they'll take a new loyalty oath to the United States, all is forgiven. Even those who refuse aren't punished. They're simply escorted to British lines. The towering Virginians' forgiving nature upsets two groups. First, the revolution's radicals, who want blood and vengeance. Ah, but George realizes that a to error is human to forgive divine policy is good politics. It makes the Patriots look like the good guys compared to the Redcoats who, despite Sir William Howe's best attempts to stop it, still did a bit of raping and plundering while in the area last year. The second group is upset because the loyalty oaths are to the United States. They counter that the United States is not a country, but an alliance of sovereign states. This would be like someone in the 21st century taking a loyalty oath to NATO or the European Union. George is also creating military units that aren't attached to a specific state. For many congressional delegates, George's dismissal of state sovereignty is troubling. But beyond the sickness, desertion, and angry men in Congress, there is some good news for the Continental Commander. His inner circle of trustworthy advisors, whom he likes to call his military family, is growing. As we know from past episodes, George has been aware of Alexander Hamilton's brilliance at least since the retreat from New York, and on March 1st, it's officially announced that this young artillery officer is now the general's newest aide-de-camp and getting promoted from captain to lieutenant colonel. A gifted wordsmith, Alex will become the errand to George's Moses, writing many of George's letters during and after the war. For childless George and orphaned Alex, this will be a father and son type of relationship. 
On July 31st, 1777, George gains another military son, a 19-year-old Frenchman bearing a letter of recommendation from Benjamin Franklin and, thanks to Congress, now an honorary major general. This is the Marquis de Lafayette. Now, there are a lot of French officers showing up in America at this point, but Lafayette's different. He doesn't condescend to the Americans, as so many Europeans tend to do. The young, oval-faced Frenchman with a receding hairline also works aggressively to learn English, becoming fluent fast. About a year after they first meet, George will write to his friend, Governor Morris, I do most devotely wish that we had not a single foreigner among us except the Marquis de Lafayette, who acts upon very different principles from that which govern the rest. Lafayette's commission came only a few weeks after British commander Sir William Howe decided to start playing games with George anew. Yes, the wintering is over, and in mid-June 1777, General Howe begins what will be known as the Philadelphia Campaign. He starts with a series of feints over several weeks. What is Sir Billy up to? Does he hope to draw George's far smaller army out? Maybe he'll head north to help Gentleman Johnny, who's just starting the Saratoga Campaign at this point. Will he move on Philadelphia, as stated in his correspondence with Colonial Secretary Lord Germain? Perhaps he'll move against the South. No one knows. Even two centuries from now, historian Don Higginbotham will write that, quote, To this day, Howe's intentions remain clouded. Close quote. Lacking clarity from his spies, George anxiously moves his Continental Army about, trying to be prepared to protect Philadelphia or meet the menace of Howe's army elsewhere. Finally, on July 8th, General Howe's 18,000-man army boards some 260 ships at New York and disappears. Remember, this is 1777. No GPS, no satellites, no Google Maps. So yes, a massive fleet can simply disappear. Is this a trap? Is Howe trying to make George think he's heading south only to double back to New York? On July 31st, George learns that the British fleet is at Delaware Bay, but then it disappears again. The fleet finally materializes once more three weeks later in late August to land at Head of Elk, later to be known as Elkton, in northern Maryland. After months of guessing, George now knows where Howe is, and that's only 57 miles away from Philly. The Virginian can't ignore that threat. Time to throw down. A quick note before these armies clash. George is stunned that Sir William Howe is not helping Gentleman Johnny. Lord Germain isn't thrilled either. In fact, the British colonial secretary wrote a letter to Howe on May 18th in which he finally told him with some clarity that he needs to take Philly, then head north urgently to assist Johnny. Ooh, too bad Billy Howe's time at sea means he's just getting that letter now in late August. Things are still in action up there, but as we know, the die is already cast. Undoubtedly, Sir William Howe's possible role in the Saratoga campaign is the biggest British miscommunication of 1777, if not the whole war. And so, not helping his gentleman colleague to the north, General Howe moves his redcoats toward Philadelphia. George Washington and his 12,000-strong army march through the Colonial Alliance's capital on August 24th and are cheered as they press on to defend it. And two and a half weeks later, the two opposing armies meet. It's a foggy morning, September 11th, 1777. 
We're in southeastern Pennsylvania at a shallow crossing known as Chad's Ford on the Brandywine River. George Washington's forces are on the river's northeastern bank. They're exchanging musket balls with Lieutenant General Wilhelm von Knüphausen's men on the opposite shore. George leads from the front, as always, and at some point, as he faces his men, it's said that British Major Patrick Ferguson has the exposed Continental commander in his sights. The British officer doesn't fire, unwilling to kill a man with his back turned. Lucky for George, and frankly, the United States. But George's luck turns for the worst around 12 noon, as he receives reports that Lord Cornwallis's redcoats crossed the Brandywine River at another, more northern ford to flank Continental General John Sullivan on the American right. Good God, it's the Battle of Long Island all over again. By late afternoon, redcoats and hessians are splashing across the river at Chad's Ford too. Musket balls and bayonets carry out the work of death, while Nathaniel, the fight in Quaker Green's division, valiantly provides the rear guard needed for the American army to flee. And that's the best they can do. This battle's over. Sir William Howe has won the field. General Howe's victory at Brandywine brings him that much closer to taking Philadelphia and came at the relatively small cost of about 500 casualties. George Washington's casualties were double that. Among them is the wounded Marquis de Lafayette, shot through the left calf as he pressed his bayonet-bearing soldiers to hold the line during the retreat. His boot quickly filling with blood, Lafayette received immediate assistance from Captain James Monroe. The youthful future U.S. president and Frenchman will become good friends. Once at the hospital, George Washington tells doctors to attend to Lafayette, quote, as if he were my son, close quote. Overall, I guess you could say the injury proves a blessing in disguise for Lafayette. He just picked up some serious street cred with the Patriots. But sticking with the big picture, losing at Brandywine means that George Washington can no longer promise Philadelphia's safety. Congress worries while the indefatigable Continental Commander sends Alexander Hamilton to acquire crucially needed supplies, ranging from musket balls to shoes. It's during this time that some of George's men fall prey to a surprise attack at night and are slaughtered in their sleep. On the night of September 20th to the 21st, around midnight or 1 a.m., British Major General James Gray leads a group of redcoats through the woods and up to General Anthony Wayne's camp near Paoli. With their flints removed to ensure no misfiring guns give them away, General Gray's men then proceed to bayonet the sleeping patriots by the light of their own campfires. Many of these Americans never make it out of their blankets. They're killed in their sleep, their corpses left soaking in their own blood. British Major General John Andre tells us they stabbed great numbers. Near 200 must have been killed, a great number wounded, 71 prisoners. British casualties are less than 10. So goes the Battle of Paoli, also known as the Paoli Massacre. It's a little less than a week after this that General Howe takes Philadelphia. His triumphant redcoats march into the colonial capital on September 26, 1777. But this doesn't deal the psychological blow to the patriot cause that dear Billy Howe hoped it would. As we know from the first half of this episode, Horatio Gates and his crew have gentlemen Johnny's army against the ropes in New York State at the same time. That's keeping the patriots' morale up. Further, George is not out for the count. His army is still together. So sure, Congress is inconvenienced at having to move to York, Pennsylvania, but the greatest damage done by the British occupation of Philadelphia isn't to the Patriot cause, 
is to George's reputation. The commander-in-chief is looking the fool here compared to his subordinate Horatio up north. Sounds like George could really use a victory at this point, and it appears that Sir William Howe has given him the opportunity to score one. While Lord Cornwallis holds Philadelphia, Sir Billy has the main army, about 9,000 men, encamped just five miles north of the city at Germantown. Ah, but even better, some of those forces have been diverted to protect supply lines and to carry out an attack on Billingsport. A fan of the Fabian strategy, George is hoping that, like Roman commander Fabius Maximus, who wore down Carthaginian general Hannibal until defeating the invader at the 216 BC Battle of Cannae, his harassing victories at Trenton and Princeton can now translate to a victory at Germantown. It's the evening of October 3rd, 1777. George Washington's 11,000 soldiers are moving out, marching from their camps at Skipat Creek to attack the main British Army's camp at Germantown, 15 miles away. They'll arrive in the morning, and when they do, their four separate columns, two of Continentals and two of militiamen, will divide and strike the British from four separate roads at 5 a.m. George will stay with General John Sullivan's Continental Column, as it will deliver the main attack. It's a brilliant, though complicated plan. If successful, George might capture General Howe, and that could mean the end of the war here and now. Let's see how it goes. It's now 5 a.m. the next morning, October 4th. Failing to maintain discipline, General John Sullivan's troops opened fire rather than meeting the first British pickets with bayonets alone. The Redcoats return fire, but give ground. Advancing, the main column encounters the three-story home of a patriotic Pennsylvanian judge, Benjamin Chew. Made of sturdy stone, the British have made it a fortress, one that even Henry Knox's cannons can't dent. Precious patriot lives are lost trying to subdue it. Time is lost as well, and this allows Sir William Howe to call for reinforcements from Philly. But worse still is the confusion created by the morning fog as Nathaniel Green's column of Continentals makes its late arrival. One of General Sullivan's subordinates, General Adam Stephen, is absolutely drunk and mistakes these freshly arriving Continentals for the enemy. Friendly fire ensues. Within three hours of the initial attack, George has lost yet another battle. He is forced to retreat. George Washington blames the loss at Germantown on the lack of visibility caused by the fog. Of course, General Adam Stephen being completely wasted didn't help either, and I'm sure it won't surprise you that this is the end of his military career. But reasons for losing aside, George exchanges letters with Sir William after the battle and ensures the return of the British commander's pet dog. I'm serious. George sends the dog to his foe with the following letter on October 6, 1777. General Washington's compliments to General Howe. He does himself the pleasure to return him a dog, which accidentally fell into his hands, and by the inscription on the collar, appears to belong to General Howe. That's right. George shoots to kill one day, but returns the enemy's lost dog only days later. If that's not the epitome of a soldier and a gentleman, I don't know what is. Losing at Germantown isn't all bad for George. It's more of a mixed bag. On the plus side, most of his men fought well. The battle actually serves as a confidence booster for the army as they realize they can hold their own against Howe's main force. In fact, Howe comes away from the battle more impressed with and scared of George Washington. France's foreign minister, Comte de Vergennes, who, to remind you about the timeline, will sign treaties with Ben Franklin in just a few months, 
is impressed with George's ragtag army as well. He recognizes that raising a military from scratch that can stand against the well-trained British within a mere year, even if it loses, is still a serious accomplishment. But that whole not bad given your conditions perspective is not the way some congressional and military leaders see it. Some simply see George losing, just as he did in New York, just as he did in New Jersey. And remember what I said earlier about George looking the fool while Horatio looks the hero? This is only all the more true as October passes and Horatio feeds on the glory of capturing Gentleman Johnny's entire army. Never mind that this success is arguably more due to Benedict Arnold, or that George Washington had sent Horatio reinforcements this summer at his own expense. Horatio looks good, George looks bad. Some in Congress are even questioning if George is still the right guy to command the Continental Army. With some congressional delegates and military leadership whispering that Horatio Gates should replace him as Commander-in-Chief, George Washington further upsets those in Congress by refusing to take supplies from civilians by force of bayonet. Instead, he leads his men 25 miles northwest of Philadelphia to make winter's camp. The exhausted Virginian general and his hungry, poorly dressed, ill-equipped army prepare to suffer in the cold among the more easily defendable wooded hills of Valley Forge. A ruined reputation, his army battered, beaten, and freezing feels like December 1776 all over again. Yes, things are once more looking dire for George Washington. How on earth will he feed his men this winter, recover his good name, and carry on the fight here in Pennsylvania against Sir William Howe? Well, that is a story for next time. History That Doesn't Suck is created and hosted by me, Greg Jackson. Episode researched and written by Greg Jackson. Production by Airship. Sound design by Molly Bach. Theme music composed by Greg Jackson. Arrangement and additional composition by Lindsey Graham of Airship. For a bibliography of all primary and secondary sources consulted in writing this episode, visit htdspodcast.com. History That Doesn't Suck is created and hosted by me, Greg Jackson. Special guest, Professor Ben Sawyer. Production by Airship. Sound design by Molly Bach. Theme music composed by Greg Jackson. Arrangement and additional composition by Lindsey Graham of Airship. HTDS is supported by fans at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. My gratitude to your kind souls providing funding to help us keep going. Thank you. And a special thanks to our patrons whose monthly gift puts them at producer status. Anthony Pizzullo, Art Lang, Beth M. Chris Jansen, Bev Hawkins, Bill Thompson, Bob Drazovich, Brad Herman, Brian Goodson, Carrie Bagoli, Charles and Shirley Clendenden, Chris Mendoza, Christopher McBride, Christopher Merchant, Christopher Pullman, Dane Polson, David Aubrey, David DeFazio, David Rifkin, Denke, Dronte Spencer, Donald Moore, Ernie Lowe, Gareth Griffin, Henry Brunges, Jacob McDaniel, Jake Gilbreth, James Black, Jeannie McCreary, Jeffrey Moots, Jennifer Magnolia, Jessica Popic, Joe Dobis, Joel Kerr, John Frugal Dougal, John Bovey, John Keller, John Oliveros, John Rudlevich, John Schaefer, John Sheff, Jordan Corbett, Justin M. Spriggs, Karen Bartholomew, Kim R., Kyle Decker, Lawrence Neubauer, Linda Cunningham, Mark Ellis, Mark Price, Matthew Mitchell, Matthew Simmons, Melanie Jan, Nick Sikender, Noah Hoff, Paul Goinger, Reese Humphreys Wadsworth, Rick Brown, Sarah Trawick, S.B. Wave, Sean Peppard, Sharon Thiessen, Sean Baines, The Creepy Girl, Tisha Black, and Zach Jackson. Join me in two weeks, where I'd like to tell you a story. <laughs> <laughs>